Greetings, my good people. How we doing? How we feeling? All is well? Feeling good? Good spirit and health? I really hope that's the case and your week is off to a great start. As my week is off to a great start and here to talk about everything that's going on in the world of sports is yours truly, Jay Reels, here on the Jay Reels Podcast on a Monday, October the 15th in the year of our Lord, 2018. The Ides of October as we deliver everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the hardwood, the world of the gridiron, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. So if this is your first time tuning in, getting a chance to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's happening in the world of SPRTS, welcome aboard and thank you for downloading and being able to listen to this podcast. Please spread the word if you do enjoy this. Obviously, feel free to send it off to anybody and everybody who will be interested in listening to what it is that I have to say, as well as those who have listened to the show more than once. Welcome back. This week, lots to catch up on. College football was a topsy-turvy week in the top 25. We'll get into that. As well as all the baseball, the AL and NLCS is in full swing. Both series are tied at one game apiece. And obviously, we need to put to rest the 2018 New York Yankees. We'll get into the possible scenarios heading into the offseason regarding the Bombers. All that's going on with the Giants as their season has certainly have gone out to sea, well out to sea. And we'll kick off with the football right now, but we're going to start with the Jets and everything that's going on there on the other side of the building there at MetLife, where Gang Green is now the top story, if you want to think about this, in New York sports right now. Certainly not the Yankees, because they have exited stage right back on Tuesday. The Giants, I understand they're going to be more the top story because everything that was expected from them going into the season with the new coach, the new running back, the shiny offense that has certainly gone kaput. But the Jets right now, and it's certainly not the hockey teams, and the NBA, although it kicks off tomorrow night, it's not the Knicks or Nets. It is the Jets with their new quarterback who's performed well. What a game yesterday, 24 for 30, very efficient. Two touchdowns, 280-something yards. He did throw an interception, but the legend of Broadway Sam, as they're calling him, uh, which we could save that. But number 14 is certainly flying high and taking this franchise to uh, early success and early heights. And all you can say about the kid is that he's been unflappable. He's made some big throws. Even the game last week against Denver, he was only 10 for 22, but made some key throws at key moments, as you saw. And with this stretch right now, games at home, after starting their season one and three with three or four on the road, they've certainly bounced back in a nice way, beating a Denver team that's certainly on their level. And then beating the Colts, who are a step below that. And we all know with the Jets and Jet fans in the past, whenever the Jets have a win against an opponent, such as, let's say, the Broncos, a lot of people would think that the Jets would start reading their press clippings, that the players would certainly, as psyched up and as pumped up as they are, they would lay an egg the next week. Well, right out of the gate, they certainly didn't do so, where Andrew Luck on the first offensive play of the series, or of the game, I should say, Throws a pick six, although it was tipped and batted a couple times, but fell into the hands of Morris Claiborne as he takes it to the house, about 20-something yards. And from that moment on, you're kind of thinking to yourself, is it going to be one of those afternoons there at MetLife? Well, with a little nip and tuck, flip-flopping of scores, the Colts come back down the field to tie the game. Then next thing you know, the Colts and Jets exchange field goals until the Colts take a 13-10 lead. But Sam Darnold just marching down the field, Big touchdown as he threads the needle to 
Terrell Pryor in the end zone to make it 17-13. And the Jets pretty much took off from there. Next thing you know, they had a couple of possessions there right before the halfway to kick field goals where they had a historic day. Seven field goals on the day. Jason Myers knocking them through the uprights, it seems, left and right. And even though the offense, as steady as it was and as productive as it was, I understand you'd like to see more progress when it comes to them not only converting on first downs but getting deeper into the red zone, punching those into the end zone because, as we know, the score could have been a lot higher and they certainly would have had a more offensive output, but that wasn't the case. And even at 30-13, to I'm sure the Jet fan was a little nervous knowing that if the Colts were to get back in this game and Andrew Luck has a penchant of dragging these ragamuffins, or I can't, probably can't even name three guys on their offense. We certainly don't see any of the skilled players that they once had back in the day, a la the Reggie Waynes, Edron James, Marvin Harrisons. Those are your daddy's Indianapolis Colts. But Andrew Luck, he does account for something. He certainly did bring his team back to within six, 33-27. And then, of course, the defense had made some plays. Darren Lee had a big interception there, 36-27, although it was a two-possession game. But the defense where... If it's either Leonard Williams, who certainly have awakened from the dead over the last couple of weeks, to Jamal Adams making key stops. Uh, this team is certainly on up and up. And not to sound like a broken record, because it seems like I have been over the last couple of weeks, but all you want to see from this Jet team is just progression. Progression from the quarterback, of course, from the young guys on the offense, whether it be a Chris Herndon, who certainly chipped in, and he's had his ups and downs here so far in the season, but he had his... A touchdown catch. He's made some plays. You also have the guys on the defense that I've mentioned that have certainly have stepped up. Avery Williamson, the veteran acquisition that they got in the offseason, certainly contributed huge in this game. And that's all you want to see because the Jets do not have one or two players that are home run game-breaking type of players, meaning that there isn't going to be one person that's going to pull this team out from the fire whenever things get bad or to have that big comeback where they could just rest on the shoulders of a quarterback. Now, granted, Donald is six games in, so we can't put all those eggs in his basket. And, you know, it's such an early point of his career. You know, it's not as if, for instance, in Green Bay, when you got a guy like Aaron Rodgers that will drag you through the mud, will, as I said, pull that team out of the fire and win games for you. The Jets have to do this as a collective unit. And right, could you say that for all 30 teams in the NFL? Absolutely. But we all know that there is always one or two players on certain teams that are able to carry a team on its back and say, don't worry, I got this, let's go. Those impact type players. Now, will the Jets have those eventually? Absolutely, if everything goes according to schedule. And we all know it begins and ends with the quarterback. So having that guy in the mix is going to be huge because you know that on a week-to-week basis, as he gets more knowledge, as he gets more experience, he's going to be the type of player that's going to be able to say, hey, guys, I know we're down 20-6. to I know we've played like crap these first two and a half quarters, whatever it may be, but guess what? I'm going to sling it through the air. I'm going to carry this team to victory. And we would only hope as Jet fans, and not to say I am a Jet fan because we all know that's not the case, but the Jet fans would certainly want that type of player in their mix and – having a guy like Sam Darnold and showing what he's been able to perform here in these first six weeks certainly gives you that promise. And you only hope defensively Jamal Adams could be that guy, that impact guy on defense that also could carry a team. Now, we all know 
having that pass rusher, as we've seen in Chicago, with a guy like Khalil Mack, makes all the difference when it comes to that defense. He's the type of guy, that home run hitter, that you know that, hey, you're down 16-10 and you've played like crap all day. All you need is that strip stack, hopefully a fumble recovery, and maybe taken to the house to kind of carry that team to a victory or kind of rally the troops to say, hey, this is the type of guy that we need. This is the type of player that certainly could wreck a game. And we know the quarterbacks mostly do that. But now with the Jets, collectively, as you're getting contributions from all different parts, all different types of players, you only hope that you could build and continue to build off of this. And next week you have an opponent that's certainly not going to be easy. The Vikings have certainly played a lot better since their slow start. So I think this is going to be a true test. This is a game that I think that the Jets can win. I mean, why can't they? You know, it's going to take a lot. The Vikings had a big offensive game there against the, and of course, Arizona Cardinals. But, you know, you had Latavius Murray running for 155 yards, so the Jets will have to focus on him. We know about Kirk Cousins and obviously all the offseason stuff, which is not going to matter, but him spurning the Jets so he could go to Minnesota feeling as if he has a better opportunity to win a Super Bowl there. There's not going to be any ill will or animosity when it comes to the players, even the front offices for that. But who knows? Maybe a story comes out this week that, hey, we're glad we got Sam. We don't need Kirk Cousins. Can you hear a Jet player come out and say that this week? Wouldn't be surprised. But not that I'm speculating or predicting that. The Jets right now know that they could finish this three-game consecutive home stretch. If they could punctuate it with a victory against the Vikings, I think it will go far for the season. Now, we all know it's a week-to-week league. That could change in a heartbeat. I get that. But the way the Jets have played, you'd only hope that if they do happen to win this game, and I'm not saying that if they go 4-3, and three, that, yeah, they're going to the playoffs. No, I'm not going to be that stupid. But you would think that after that 1-3 and three start, getting some home cooking, if they somehow, someway could pull off a victory this coming Sunday against the Vikings, I think will go a long way for this team. And even if they go into a tailspin, knowing that they have to win these games at home are going to be important, especially for a young quarterback. Now, we all know winning on the road is crucial because down the road, if the Jets, if and when the Jets make the postseason, you know, it's not as if they're going to have all their games mapped out at home. And certainly the uh, AFC is not going to go through MetLife for a Super Bowl, especially in the AFC. So having those games on the road, although as crucial and as big as they are for Darnold here in his rookie season so he can build on that, but even more importantly, you want to win those games at home. And although the Vikings, on paper, certainly probably are a nightmare when it comes to their defense because their defense, although it's been spotty, hasn't been great, but we know that the Vikings are one of the top defenses in the league. If somehow, some way, the Jets could exploit certain weaknesses on that defense and make some plays... And somehow, some way, come out with an ugly victory because you could see it being, you know, 2017 or 1916 because that's the type of game they're going to have to win. They're not going to win a shootout against a team that certainly has a lot of Pro Bowl personnel on that side of the ball. So, as much as I want to sing their praises, it's only six games. Can't get crazy. Remember last year at this time, they were three and three. In fact, they were three and two after five games. And then they won, I believe, what was it? They ended up going 5-6, uh, and six, and then they lost the last five games of the season. So despite all the hype and all the excitement and everything that's going on, you certainly have to take a deep breath, take a step back, 
Just enjoy what you've seen so far with this Jet team. And then only hope that they could certainly continue to carry this momentum into next week against the Vikings and beyond. If you're starting to think playoffs, if you're starting to think division, oh, we haven't even played New England yet. All right, Miami beat us earlier this year, but if we could tie them, uh, you can't start thinking that just yet if you're a Jet fan. I understand you want to remain optimistic. I understand you want to look at it and say, hey, maybe somehow, some way we could steal games against New England. Right, I understand that. As a fan, you're going to start thinking that way. Or you're going to start thinking wild card aspirations. You know, who else has done bad throughout the AFC? But you can't, it's way too early for that. You can't even think to prognosticate where this season or where this team is going to go this season to the point where, hey, can they be in the mix come week 14, 15, 16, and 17? No, let's get to week 10. You get there, you see where you're at. Hey, if you're 5-5, five and five, you want to start looking into a pseudo-crystal ball, fine. But right now, where you haven't even gone halfway through the season and you still have 10 games left on the docket, the last thing any Jet fan wants to do is start thinking this team has a shot for the postseason or division or anything like that. So enjoy it. Enjoy the progress. I've said time and time again on this podcast, as long as they continue to progress and not regress, that's what you want to see because this team is not built for this year. This team is built for year three, year four, year five of this Sam Donald regime. And what you get out of it so far, you have to be ecstatic. I get that. But at the same time, you can't start thinking, oh, how far can this team go this year when you're only six games in? And on the other side of the building at MetLife, as far as the Giants are concerned, what a major disappointment this team has turned out to be. Uh, There's no ifs, ands, buts, maybes about it. And I get that there may be some Giant fans that are looking at the Jets' success, especially with the quarterback, and thinking, why didn't we draft a quarterback? That's going to be the argument here for the next 10 years. And Saquon Barkley could be Marshall Falk 2.0. But we all know this league, it's all about the QB. And what we've seen, despite the fact he's had some flashes, despite the fact he's had some good games, but when you look at what happened there Thursday night, and it's not all on Eli Manning, but when you look at what happened there on Thursday night against the Eagles for their season, they certainly laid as big as an egg as you possibly could make. I mean, it's... I mean, there's no bones about that. And now where you have a giant season that's going to be out to sea and there's going to be a lot of the talk, and you already hear it. Can the Giants end up with the top three picks in the draft? Maybe making amends for not drafting a quarterback last year. Now, of course, the hierarchy, the front office, Dave Gettleman and company, they're certainly not going to look at it that way. They're certainly not even going to think of it that way. Because they wanted Saquon Barkley from, I'm sure, the second they laid their eyes on him. And despite the fact that they didn't feel as if there was a franchise slash Hall of Fame quarterback to fill the shoes of a one Eli Manning, they thought, hey, we got our guy, we're good. And that guy was the only one that showed up there at MetLife on Thursday against the Eagles. And we'll get to Barkley in a second. But as far as the team is concerned, they just seemed disinterested. They looked like they quit in the fourth, uh, in the second half of this game, not in the fourth quarter because the game was already done by the fourth quarter. Not making tackles, not making plays. The offense is just dink and dunk. They don't take shots down the field with all the offensive firepower and personnel that they have, you would think. But again, that's Shermer, and you hear Shermer on the sidelines, you know, throw the ball where Eli's looking to check down on Barkley. It seems like every, you know, a second after the snap is made. This team is just in such disarray. 
to the point where, who knows, you may start hearing rumors about Eli being traded to Jacksonville considering the way the Jaguars have faulted here over the last couple of weeks. And would that surprise you if that'd be the case? There's a lot of blame to go around. I'm going to start with the quarterback in this regard. For Eli, and we understand the offensive line. Let's start there. We understand that, but he's had his moments and he's had time in games throughout this early season that he's able to make plays, make throws, whether it was in the Texan game, whether it was in the game before uh, at Carolina. So he's had his moments. It's not as if he's been under siege every time the ball is snapped. But for whatever the reason, they are not taking shots down the field. They are not trying to even stretch the field. It's almost as if knowing that he has a guy like Saquon Barkley in the mix, it's like, well, hey, any pressure that comes or any, if I don't see anybody open in the first couple seconds, I'm going right to him. And I'm sure Barkley is enjoying that. He likes that. But at the same time, we can't put it all on him. So, Eli, I get it that it's hand-in-hand hand with Shermer and the offense to try to stretch the field and take those shots. But Eli, I think, has become so comfortable with checking down and hopefully getting the strengths of the skills that Barkley has to offer that he's just going down to him at any moment, it seems. Anytime that there is nobody open or no one's available, Let's go to 26. Now, I haven't watched every second of the game. Now, I watched the game the other night, and that's all you see. It seems as if Barkley is the only guy that's on that offense that's gonna is willing to make any plays, let alone wanting to make any plays. Because as you've seen, Odell didn't have a big game. Sterling Shepard. And they have pieces. We all know. I've said this time and time again. But now, with Eli, you got to wonder. The production has been very inconsistent here over the course of the season and a half. He's, I don't know if it's a psychological thing. I know he's the type of guy where he's not going to tip his hand or say what's wrong or what's going on or what's happening. I get that. But you have to be concerned with a guy that's been in the league as long as he has been at 37 years of age, knowing that he wants to win It's not as if he just wants to punt these games away, but at the same time, you know, where's his head at? Because for whatever the reason, he is certainly not rallying these troops as the not only leader, but the face of this franchise. And we get that he's not a rah-rah type of guy. He's not an in-your-face guy. But you know what? He is the guy that everybody's going to lean on in times like this. And all Eli has is that look on his face that all shucks like, hey, what am I supposed to do? And that's it. You think other guys around the league especially of his uh, contemporaries, Ben Roethlisberger, when he gets upset or when he has to get in the face, Ben's not a rah-rah type of guy. But he certainly goes to Antonio Brown, he goes to certain guys, and he says, come on, let's make plays. Let's do this. Phillip Rivers. Now, we all know he's a fiery guy, and at times you could kind of look at him as a hothead, but at the same time, you know, he's certainly capable and credible knowing that he's put – all this time and energy and effort into the league for 15 years. Remember, these are the guys that are always to be compared to one another because they're out of the same quarterback class. You know, do you see him giving up? Do you see him saying, oh, geez, you know, I just don't know where to go now. No, these are guys that want to win. And you would think that as much as Eli has said that in the offseason, he would be the first in line to say, all right, guys, let's cut this out. I, of course, going to lead by example, but at the same time, I need to get in people's faces because you're even starting to hear a few rumblings in the locker room about 
Eli and his production and where he's at, quote-unquote. And I'm not talking about physically, but just mentally, psychologically, etc. You know, is the team kind of turning his back on him? Now, those are some reports. Certainly remains to be seen. We don't know, but something to keep an eye on here, especially when this season at 1-5 and five right now, you go to Atlanta on a Monday night, which Atlanta finally won a game, and they certainly have had their own problems, but the Giants, they cannot seem to get out of their own way. The coach. I don't know what's happening here. We all know he's an offensive-minded coach. I said this last week with Carolina where they finally took shots down the field. You know, Instead of looking at his play chart or whatever it is and saying, well, if the defense is going to give us this, then we're going to take what they give us. No. They have the personnel to make any play on the field at any given time. Not none of this passive-aggressive nonsense where it's like, all right, well, hey, if uh, we only have stuff underneath, we're only going to go underneath. No, stretch that field. You got a home run hitter in Odell. You got a certainly capable number two receiver in Sterling Shepard. We all know about Barkley, so stop it. Okay, so to me, that's a lot on the coach. But you also got to wonder where the quarterback's head is, too, in all this. Odell, I know I talked about a little bit last week. I didn't really get on Odell's case like a lot of people have because I thought some of the stuff he was saying was true. But at the same time, we know that he hasn't won a thing here. He got his money. And you would think that he would just kind of lay low and stay shut and not have this interview with Jocena Anderson with Lil Wayne sitting next to him. For all the talk that we've heard Odell, even going back to the Miami boat trip before the playoff game against Green Bay, saying that, oh, I've learned a lot. I've certainly got to mature. I've certainly got to get better. And every day he says, oh, i got to get better. Every day I'm getting better, so on and so forth. No, you're certainly not getting better because there you are screaming into the the air conditioning vent on the sideline there for whatever the reason. You go off into the locker room with two seconds to go because I need an IV. And listen, if he's not feeling well, I get that. I'm not going to knock his health. But where's the coach in all this? Why isn't Odell out there with two seconds to go? Oh, he needed an IV. It's not 85 degrees out there. It's not stifling heat. In fact, it's starting to cool off here in the Northeast after what seemed to be 80-degree weather leading into last Thursday. So the excuses for Odell just can continue to pile on, whether it was with Coughlin, whether it was with Ben McAdoo, and now here we are with Pat Shermer. And that's going to infect the locker room as time goes on, especially if the losing goes on. And as far as the defense, I know Olivier Vernon came back. He had the one sack, but the defense is not making any plays. They didn't even want to tackle the other night. Janoris Jenkins flailing around. Guys getting past him. Uh, this team just has lost everything. Lost its competitiveness, its edge. Who knows? Even their will to play. And even after the, the Falcons, and again, going down there, the Falcons can put up points in their building, as you saw yesterday against Tampa. And we know they still have the firepower on offense. Defensively, they're certainly banged up and aren't going to stop anybody. But if this week, this game right here is going to be indicative of of not only just the Giants as far as the personnel is concerned, but just their organization as a whole. Because if they somehow, some way, go to Atlanta, all right, you lose a close game. Now, Carolina was tough, 63-yard field goal. We get that. But if they go in there and they only score 16 points and the Falcons go up and, you know, it's 41. They, They put 41 on the Giant defense. And what does that say for the coach? What does that even say for Gettleman and even the ownership? 
Now, we've seen in the past, John Mara is certainly a stand-up guy. He faced the media. He'll come out and say what's wrong, and he's first and foremost, hey, I'm responsible. But the poor showing against Philly at home, as bad as that was. But Philly, we understand. It's a little Super Bowl hangover, but they're defending champs. Okay, not that you want to let it slide, but we'll leave that be. You can't go to Atlanta, a team that's 2-4, and four, with no defense, despite the fact they still have the guys at the skill position that we all know. They can't go in there and not compete. Because if not, they're going to get run out of the building. They'll be 1-6, and six, and oof, the vultures are just going to be flocking all around MetLife for the remainder of this year that's wearing red, white, and blue. All right, now let's go around the rest of the NFL here on a week six to uh, catch us all up on uh, what's happening in the National Football League. We had two buys this week, or two teams that had buys, both the uh, Detroit Lions and New Orleans Saints uh, did not play this week. As far as uh, the rest of the schedule is concerned, I'll uh, zip through and cut through the fat, as I like to say, with some of these games. Well, the first game in London, I believe, is the first of three where uh, in a row, because next week I believe the Chargers are in London. I can't remember who they're playing off the top of my head. Uh, lose, oh, as a matter of fact, I think I have the schedule right here. Stand by. Here we go. We have the Chargers playing the Tennessee Titans. So that's a, I don't know if that's a 9.30 game. Yeah, it's actually an early morning game where this game was a 1 o'clock game. So you're able to see it uh, right around the times of the other games that were uh, kicked off at 1 o'clock. Next week. In Wembley, 9.30, Tennessee at L.A., and then the following week is Philadelphia and Jacksonville. So three straight weeks of games in London. If you're into that sort of thing, especially waking up crack at dawn to watch that first game, me, I could care less. Those games in London, they just need to get rid of them. Why, why even bother? But you had Seattle playing Oakland. Seattle had a 27-0 lead, and they won 27-3. Really nothing to report here other than the Raiders are awful, as we all know, and the Seattle Seahawks trying to make themselves uh, stay relevant in the NFC uh, at 3-3. Three and three. We all know they're not going to win a division because of the Rams. They are now 6-0. and oh. We'll fast forward to them uh, as they win 23-20. First time this year that they had less than 30 points in a game. They scored 23 out in Denver, 25 degrees. It was the kickoff time. Uh, it was the temperature at the kickoff out at mile high. So the Rams, uh, 23-20, where Todd Gurley had 208 yards on the ground. Uh, big game for him. Big game for the team overall. As we know, the Rams are doing big things as they are the last team in the NFL that is undefeated where the Chiefs lose to the Patriots. I might as well get to that. Nice segue there. Wild game in Foxborough last night where the Chiefs and Patriots went down to the wire. 43-40 was the final where the Patriots were victorious. Patriots actually had two big leads in this game, 24-9 and 27-16 before the Chiefs came firing back. And had that just crazy play there with Tyreek Hill there toward the end with a great catch by him and up the sideline to tie the game when the they were trailing 40 to, 40, uh, 40 to 33 with three minutes to go. So Mahomes and company, big game from him, although he threw a couple of interceptions but had four touchdowns and great offensive output, almost 1,000 yards of offense in that game. But the uh, Chiefs finally lose 5-1 and one now on the season. Remember last year they started off 5-0, and oh, and again, I understand different year, different quarterback, we get that, but... Let's see if this is going to hurt the Chiefs more than it helps them at getting that first loss of the year. Uh, a wild game down in Miami. Now, this is something that you wouldn't expect. These offenses highlighted with uh, Mitchell Trubisky, a quarterback for the Bears, and Brock Osweiler. That's right. Brock uh, Osweiler, the former Bronco quarterback who 
was at the helm there for the Dolphins. Both teams racked over 1,000 yards of offense in that game. Bunch of lead changes in this game. But it all ended up on the uh, foot of the kicker, Jason Sanders, who kicked a field goal there to end the game in overtime. Actually, the Bears had a chance to win in overtime, but they missed a the field goal as the Dolphins. And it's crazy how a lot of these overtime games and never seem to be won in the first couple of minutes. Always seems to go down to the wire. We already had you know two ties in this uh, year already. In fact, in the first two weeks of the season, and to think we could actually could have probably had a few more. But the uh, Dolphins win there 31-28 over the Bears. It's just in a wild game down there in South Florida. Now the uh, Dolphins 4-2 and two, and the Bears now 3-2. and two. I believe that record is 3-2 because they already had their bye. Uh, so that's what you got there cooking there in that game. Uh, let's go back to trimming some fat. Baltimore and Tennessee. Baltimore only gave up 108 yards. As we know, Tennessee's offense is from hunger. They've had 87 yards. Now, defensively, they're good. They're 3-3. Three and three. They've only given up 107 yards, but 87, uh, excuse me, 107 points this year. As a matter of fact, they had 108 yards, which was one yard more than the points that they've given up all year. That just needs to just puts it right there in perspective. And they've only mustered 87 points on offense. It's an out-and-out disgrace. Mariota was under siege, 11 sacks by the Ravens. In a wet field in uh, Tennessee, 21 nothing was the Ravens' victory over the Titans. Uh, let's see if we could trim some more fat here. Buffalo and Houston, all you got to do is just go to the final play, which iced it. Nathan Peterman, who came in for Josh Allen, throws a pick six, 28 yards, which is a terrible throw. Uh, Buffalo actually had the lead in this game. Deshaun Watson did not perform well, but the uh, Texans, who have righted the ship, remember they started off 0-3 and they're now 3-3. and so they have certainly uh, tied themselves atop the AFC South with the Tennessee Titans, as we mentioned, and then the Jacksonville Jaguars. Is it safe to say that this defense is overrated? This defense right here in the last two weeks have given up, count them, 70 points for a team that's supposed to be a top-ranked defense, and rightfully so. Do they deserve that respect? Yes, but when you look at the last two weeks, all right, in Kansas City, they could give up 30 points, no problem with that offense. But the Cowboys, we all know they don't have receivers. Yes, they do have Ezekiel Ezekiel Elliott. Yes, you know, Dak Prescott has had his moments here this year, but certainly has not been able to sling the football around like he once did a couple years back with, obviously, Des Bryant, Jason Witten, just to name a couple guys. Losing 40-7, to they gave up. Before you know it, they were down in this game uh, early. I believe it was 20 to nothing. They had uh, two long drives there in the second quarter, one of 84 yards on seven plays and the other 16 plays, 78 yards. So they just wore that defense down in that second quarter. And 40-7 to was their final tally. Listen, the Jaguars, I'm sure they're going to be heard from again. They've hit a speed bump here. Bortles was awful. And that's why the talk before with Eli, who knows, could that be thrown back into the mix? Uh, it remains to be seen. I doubt that'd be the case. But the defense certainly has not shown up here these last two weeks, especially yesterday, and that's shame on them. Because if you're a top defense, and granted these two games are on the road, there's no way that you're going to give up 70 points, okay, back-to-back weeks, and then give up the yardage that they give. And almost 400 yards to this Cowboy offense is just putrid. There's no way uh, else to explain it. So that's what you have there with the uh, Jaguars, and now a three-team tie atop the AFC South with the Texans back in the mix. And you have a huge game this week with Houston going to Jacksonville. So that's going to be one of those games where I don't even know what the spread is. And I'm not a betting man. But, boy, I'm sure with Houston winning three straight and Jacksonville losing their last two games badly, 
I would certainly put all my shekels on the Jaguars to win not only this week, but also the cover. The Chargers go to Cleveland. The last time they went to Cleveland, I believe, they lost. That was when uh, Cleveland started that long stretch of not winning before winning earlier against the uh, Jets and then, of course, winning against the Ravens last week. Not to be this case this week. The Browns lose 38-14. Melvin Gordon, who's the most underrated player in the league. People could talk about, and I understand running back doesn't get to shine as it once did, but when people think about running backs in the NFL, when he's there, Le'Veon Bell, and I'll get to him in a little bit, People going to look at Ezekiel Elliott. People, of course, look at Todd Gurley. Uh, you may, people want to maybe throw in Kareem Hunt's hat into the ring. That's fine, too. But the guy that certainly gets zero pub, and granted, he plays in L.A., which is a big market, but again, the Chargers, they're certainly not one of the cornerstone franchises in the league. Had a huge game, three touchdowns on the ground, including 132 yards just on 18 carries. So the Chargers, 4-2, and two, <clears throat> excuse me, certainly have uh, played very well. Here this early going and looking to do big things here in the AFC uh, for this 2018 season. Tampa and Atlanta, Matt Ryan with a big game. He had 31 for 41 for 354 and three touchdowns. They get back in the win column. Although Tampa and Jameis Winston certainly put up a lot of numbers. Big time, he threw for what, uh, 389 yards, four touchdowns, but had a couple of picks as uh, Tampa. Remember that start in Fitzmagic, that's certainly uh, been long gone. And Atlanta just trying to get back any semblance of their offense or any semblance of their team, considering that they've uh, certainly got stubbed their toe running out of the gate here for this 2018 year. But the Falcons, 34-29, and we talked about it earlier with the Giants going down there. It's going to be fascinating to see for both teams. You know, Can this Falcon team build on this and kind of put up those points that they're accustomed to, especially in that building? And can the Giants also do the same without their top dogs on defense, the Falcons, that is. What can they do to salvage their season and just win a game? Going to be a fascinating game. Now, is it going to be a marquee game? Absolutely not. But based on the couple of things that I mentioned there, that's where, at least locally, it's going to be uh, all eyes will certainly be fascinated to see how that game unfolds. What else we got here to cover? Carolina and Washington. That was a game where with Josh Norman going up against his old buddies and having a Big lead early, 17-0 just in the second quarter alone, but they held on, played well. I know the Panthers had a shot there toward the end to try to get, not only get back in the game, but certainly uh, win the game, but that wasn't going to be the case. Washington wins 23-17, so the Panthers lose their second game of the year. And I know there was a lot of talk after the game with Josh Norman and DJ Swearinger, I believe, I don't know if it was Cam Newton or somebody going up to his ear and Talking smack, but that's, please, neither here nor there. Nothing to even worry about because they're certainly not going to see each other any point this year unless they make it to the postseason and they play against one another. But, I, please, I, I'd be sure that that's not going to happen. So, uh, Washington certainly uh, bounces back after that uh, drubbing down in New Orleans with a uh, formidable victory against a very good team and the Panthers. And to round out the NFL schedule, let me just make sure I got everybody here. Well, tonight you got San Francisco and Green Bay. So I'm sure that's going to be a uh, – all eyes are going to be glued to watch that. Uh, but covering all the other teams – oh, Arizona, Minnesota. How could I forget that? Minnesota, who comes into the Meadowlands this week to play the Jets. Latavius Murray, as I mentioned earlier, had a big game on the ground. Uh, Kirk Cousins was average, nothing special, but certainly did the job as the Vikings 27-10 to 10 winners over the Arizona Di- – uh, Diamondbacks, thinking baseball here. Arizona Cardinals – out at U.S. Bank Stadium. And then to wrap up the uh, NFL for week six, the Steelers and Bengals 
This is a game that the Steelers, as I said last week, was a must win if they're going to do anything in this division. And granted that the Ravens won, but them beating the Bengals was a building block going into a bye was a building block for the season for this reason. If they have any chance of winning a division, they needed to beat the Bengals this first game because three in two weeks they're going to play the Ravens in Baltimore, which is going to be enormous. And then coupled with that with the Bengals beating the Ravens earlier this year, they're going to need the Bengals to beat them later on. A lot of what-ifs, but this game yesterday was certainly huge for them. It was back and forth, nip and tuck, pretty much throughout. Steelers had a drive there late. As a matter of fact, when they kicked the field goal at 17-14, the game was tied. They had a play where Tomlin actually could have reviewed. James Conner looked like it was a touchdown. It was ruled down at the one. He certainly could have thrown the flag there. He throws the flag for more stupider things, if you ask me. But he didn't throw the flag there. They got stopped on the goal line. They had to kick a field goal 17-14. And then on the next-to-last drive for the Steelers offensively, they had a chance to get a first down. He threw uh, Roethlisberger through to Vance McDonald where he fumbled the ball a yard away from the marker. Thankfully, Juju Smith-Schuster was Johnny on the spot. He was able to recover the fumble. They kicked the field goal 20-14 to with about three minutes to go. I think it was oh, four minutes, four and change to go. And I thought to myself at that moment, I said, I do not trust the steel defense. I believe that the Bengals, although they didn't really muster much in the second half on offense, I believe they're going to march down the field and score a touchdown here. In fact, they did so right before the half when the Steelers took a 14-7 lead with just a minute seven to go. What did they do? March down the field to get the equalizer to tie it at the half. So quiet second half offensively for the Bengals until that final drive where Joe Mixon runs it in. But with a minute 18 and three timeouts, I thought to myself, that's plenty of time. All they need to do is kick a field goal, and away they go. Big play on that drive was a third and 10 where Roethlisberger threw a pass to Juju, which was incomplete, but a defensive holding call on Drake Kirkpatrick, turned that around. Steals were able to march down the field at the 31-yard line, the already in field goal range. Crazy play where Ben sees a mismatch on the defense. He throws a quick out to Antonio Brown, which gets a huge block, a pick from Justin Hunter, and he runs right up the middle of the field, no safety help, into the end zone, touchdown, 26-21. They tack on a two-point conversion, 28-21. For whatever the reason, the Bengals never, and I mean never, beat the Steelers in a huge spot. They can't. And even with 118, I felt confident. 1,000%. I didn't look at it all the games over. I can't believe they blew this game. No. No one had their whole t- all their timeouts and that much time left on the clock. I knew that the Steelers were going to pull this game out. Because this team is offensive driven. We all know it's all about Ben and the court. And I, not once that I even think they were going to lose this game, even after giving up that score late in the fourth quarter. So the Bengals, they can't win the big game. And I know they're probably scratching their heads and kicking themselves, knowing that this is a team as expected to do big things. And I even picked them as an over. They were six and a half in the win column. They're right down. They're at four. And you would think they're going to obliterate that. But these are games that for whatever the reason, and just talking about the Bengals real quick, they need to finish. And considering... This coaching staff, this quarterback, they've been together a long time, and the defense for the most part has been together. But they cannot seal the deal, especially when they see black and gold. For whatever the reason, they just shaking their boots. They can't make a big stop. They can't make a big play. Whatever it may be, it's just how it's been between the Bengals and Steelers, especially in the Marvin Lewis, Andy Dalton era. And for the Steelers, they go into a bye. Now all the talk about Le'Veon Bell, 
I know Ben had made the comment there in the post game, but then said that this is based on the reports from you guys. So, and he's right because that's pretty much what they've reported that Le'Veon was going to come back uh, by Week Eight, where the Steelers will play the Bengals. Um, excuse me, the Steelers will play the Browns at home before facing the Ravens the following week, which are two huge games, and we all know the Browns have been improved. But we'll see. You guys know how I feel about Le'Veon Bell. If he's going to come into the fold now, this late in the season. Now, I'd hate to say, I certainly don't want him to get hurt. I wouldn't want any player to get hurt. But this could be Earl Thomas all over again. Because watch, Le'Veon will go in. He has not played football. It's not like last year where he came in the Monday before the season started and has already got a bunch of games under his belt. He has no games under his belt. He's not in game shape. He may be in great physical shape. But not in game shape doesn't mean that you're going to go out there and crush it with 135 yards on the ground and you know 65 in the air. So we'll see. I'm sure a lot of the talk maybe this week. Who knows? He'll probably come back next Monday after the bye. And I'm not going to speculate whether or not he's going to come back or not or what have you. But until he does, then you'll get my two cents. But you just only hope that if he does come back, of course he'll be all in. But you don't want to be a situation where he's going to be tentative and it's going to be Earl Thomas all over again where he shreds a knee or breaks a leg and then that's it. He's done. So that's what you have. And then uh, as far as the games this coming week, your Thursday night game, another snoozer, Denver at Arizona. Games of note. I know the game's in London. You want to see Tennessee and the Chargers. Eh. Uh, New England at Chicago. Uh, not a great game, but you know it's a game that you could kind of at least take a look at from time to time. The big game that I look at this week is the Sunday night game, Cincinnati at Kansas City. How does Kansas City get back-to-back Sunday night games? Now, unless it's late in the season where it's a flex game, I can understand that. But this early in the season to have Kansas City back-to-back, that's a shock. Uh, Dallas at Washington. New Orleans at Baltimore, maybe. Houston at Jacksonville, as I mentioned before. Uh, you got to, you know you have some a lot of good B-level games. You have a lot of good games. You don't have any great games. Even Cincinnati Kansas City is not a great game. Excuse me, maybe if Cincinnati was 5-1, and one, but even then, you know, there are people going to think that Cincinnati is going to go in there and beat the Chiefs? Your Monday night game, as I mentioned, New York and Atlanta. And your buys are Green Bay, Oakland, Seattle, and Pittsburgh here upcoming on a Week 7 in the National Football League. All right, to quickly turn our attention to college football here, just a wild and wacky Saturday where a lot of the top 25 has been revamped and juggled and tossed and flipped and well, however you want to shape it or make it out to be. You had games that certainly impacted the top four when it comes to the playoff. Now, again, a lot of that will come out later in the month, early uh, November. But when you have uh, LSU, now LSU, remember, when they lost to Florida, they slipped all the way down. They were, I believe they got as high as eight or maybe six. And then they dropped down to 13. But considering they beat Georgia, who's ranked number two in the country, So, of course, Georgia took a few steps down. They just dominated. 36-16 was your final. LSU now has crept up so high, they're in the top five. So, with the Tigers losing last week to Florida and thinking, oh, geez, this is it. No way LSU is going to have a shot at the title. Well, look at that. What a difference a week makes. So, they certainly creep up back in the uh, coaches and uh, top 25 poll when it comes to, the uh, again, the top five in the country. You had West Virginia losing to Ohio uh, to Iowa State. You had Washington lose to Oregon in overtime. And back-to-back, they were both 6th and 7th in the country. 
Michigan State beating Penn State. Now that's back-to-back for Penn State. Remember, they lost to Ohio State there just a couple weeks back. They lost, as a matter of fact, on a TD with 19 seconds to go. So that's just a crushing loss for Penn State and any type of uh, title hopes that they may have had. Now they have two losses on the docket. Michigan just trounced on Wisconsin. Virginia beating the U. Virginia had just a defensive output there to to stymie the University of Miami there in in, uh, Virginia. And then Auburn losing to Tennessee. So you had just a bunch of teams there losing to the point where, like I mentioned, you have LSU now ranked fifth, but you have Notre Dame move up, and now they're in the top four with Alabama, Ohio State, and Clemson. It remains to be seen, then Notre Dame beat Pittsburgh there on uh, Saturday. So it's going to be interesting to see how this is going to shake down here in the weeks to come. Now, this coming weekend, the, I don't have it in front of me. Let me see if I can pull that up real quick. I know you may hear a few clicks on the computer. But when you're looking at this week's schedule <clears throat> for college, you have all well, the games of note, top 24 or top 25, I should say. You have uh, Michigan and Michigan State. Going at it where Michigan State now creeps back into the top 25 with their win over uh, Penn State, uh, Mississippi State and LSU, and then uh, Oregon and Washington State. Those are pretty much your top 25 matchups. But in the weeks to come, as a matter of fact, I'll take a better look at the schedule uh, moving forward on the next podcast or next Monday. So uh, certainly keep an eye on that as the college football season is going to heat up. And now with Notre Dame in the mix, I know a lot of people in the country are excited about that. Uh, is Notre Dame a championship-worthy team? I mean, they certainly have played well, and I haven't watched every snap, nor have I watched any of their games, but you know, Notre Dame is always going to be a stalwart in college football. We all know the name and how that holds, but when you look at recent years, and especially when they played Alabama in the national title game, what was it, uh, five, six years ago? I mean, they just got trounced. They didn't even belong on the same field as Alabama. You kind of wonder if that would be the case if Notre Dame were to step foot on a field against a Clemson or Ohio State or Alabama this time around. Obviously, a lot of football to be played. Remains to be seen. I know the quarterback there, the uh, quarterback for Alabama got hurt. Uh, I can't pronounce his name. I know he has that long last name, Islander kid, uh, Tua Tavagliola. I know I butchered his name, so forgive me for that. But uh, I know he had gotten uh, hurt in the game the other day, so we'll see how he perform or see if he's going to get back to get his starting job back in the days and weeks to come. And so your college football is starting to get a little interesting here. When you have a crazy Saturday like that where a lot of the teams get upended and the rankings and things like that, I mean, that's what you want to see. We know who the top teams are. We get the Alabamas and the Ohio States. They're going to be there. But who's going to be the three and the four and even Clemson? You know, I mean, you got to put Clemson in the mix. That's the one thing about college football. You know, it's not like any of the other leagues. It's college. You know, you're not going to see a lot of parity. You're going to see who those top teams are, just like you see in college basketball. We all know it's going to be Duke. It's going to be North Carolina. It's going to be Kentucky. We get that those teams are always going to be front and center, and the spotlight's going to be you know shining on them. So now when you have a Notre Dame there in the mix, and we all know that Notre Dame is not some sort of team that you know people, oh, who is Notre Dame? You know, They're not a Cinderella team. They're not going to be the, the, the darlings of college football because Notre Dame holds their water against all those other teams. We know that historically. So we would think that the college football season will start to pick up a little bit here. I understand you don't have a sexy slate of games this coming week, but once we get deeper into October and obviously into November, it's certainly going to pick up and we'll continue to keep our eye on it as time moves forward. All right, now to the baseball. 
Before we get to the NLCS and ALCS, obviously we got to put a ribbon on the Yankee season where it came crashing and burning there on Tuesday night at the stadium when we were on the podcast last week. I thought that it was going to go five games. I thought the Red Sox were going to push it. There's no way that a team that had 108 wins was just going to go off into the night and lose a series, especially to their hated rivals. But as it was, it didn't even make it to a fifth game. We all know what happened there in game three with Severino and not knowing the start time and his bullpen session. And that became a story that uh, spread like wildfire, rightfully so, because Severino was awful in the game. Aaron Boone is managing. Why didn't he pull him when he did? And for that, he brings in Lance Lynn. The game gets out of hand. They lose 16-1. to Brock Holt hits for the cycle. First time in postseason history as a player ever hit for the cycle. So that was historic in that regard. Although he hit the home run off of Austin Romine in the ninth inning, but still, he hit a home run in the game. Doesn't matter if I was pitching. And if he did that, kudos to him. But the game there on Tuesday night, especially that ninth inning, which was heart-stopping. It was unbelievable how that inning unfolded where, where you had Neil Walker hit by the pitch there, which extended the inning, and then had Gary Sanchez hit the near game-winning grand slam where it was caught at the track by Andrew Benintendi. And... That was also the inning where Giancarlo Stanton with two guys on, strikes out. We'll get to him in a minute. And the Yankees, even on that little chopper down the third base line with Eduardo Nunez, and Nunez had a great game. He had a big two-out hit in that uh, third inning, which got the third run of the game, and then just defensive plays that he made. And we all know Eduardo Nunez is not going to be confused with Brooks Robinson anytime today, tomorrow, or in the next 50 years. But he had made some clutch plays, some very good plays including that final play and give credit to Steve Pierce for the stretch there at first to get the final out and the Yankees, I don't care how you slice it, I don't care how you cut it I don't want to hear it this was a good season that could have been great and certainly left you wanting more and you didn't get that so with that being said it was a disappointing season now anytime you don't win a championship we get it's disappointing but when you win 100 games, and I get you went up against a Red Sox team that won 108, okay? It's not as if you lost to the A's in the first round, which that would have just been inexcusable, despite the fact that they had a good year, and not to discredit what the A's had done. With the Red Sox, though, you knew they were going to be a tough out. You knew that it wasn't going to be easy. I thought it was going to be to go to a fifth game. It didn't happen. And if you're a Yankee fan, of course you're going to be hurt. Not because you only lost to the Red Sox, which makes matters worse, but you didn't go as far as you did last year, which was... Game 7 to the Houston Astros in losing, especially being up 3-2 in that series. And there's going to be questions abound with this team. And to think, for a team that won 100 games, there's going to be questions all over the place. First off, with the starting pitching, what are the Yankees going to do? Is Patrick Corbin going to be on their radar? Are they going to make a trade? Are they going to try to get somebody? And they had the surplus to get pieces back. Or are they going to bank on the Justice Sheffields of the world, the Chance Adams of the world, Jordan Montgomery coming back from Tommy John? Maybe they re-sign CC or J-Hap and just piecemeal it that way. If you ask me, I would think they, they would have to trade for a stud starter. Because now for the second postseason in a row, you have Severino, who didn't fare well in the wildcard game last year against the Twins, who had a very tough postseason. I understand he had a uh, very good game against the A's in the wild card, but still did not pitch well against the Red Sox here. 
And all you could think of if you're a Yankee fan is if we had starting pitching. We know the bullpen is good. The bullpen should stay intact. Obviously with Batances, Chapman, Chad Green, who knows if Robertson comes back. But I would think first and foremost, starting pitching is going to be the key. But knowing Brian Cashman, you know what's going to happen. He's going to look at the what's out there, and you're going to hear all the rumors. And sure enough, they're going to have the carving board on the day or the week after the signing of a one Manny Machado to play third base for the Bombers, which would be an out-and-out disgrace. And not because that he'd be on the Yankees first and foremost, but because they don't need another right-handed power hitter, A. They don't need a third baseman because they already have one, unless they're going to trade him for a starting pitcher. And C, more importantly... If they sign Machado before they trade or even sign a top of the rotation starting pitcher, then what's the point here? Are we just stockpiling rotisserie players just to have an all-star team? I mean, that'd be typical. As a couple of people pointed out last week. So to fix the Yankee woes for them not getting to an ALCS this year, they'll sign either Bryce Harper because he's a left-handed power hitter will have a swing made for Yankee Stadium and hit 50 home runs. Where are you going to put him? God only knows, because you still got to pay Jacoby Ellsbury two more years at whatever, 40-something million. Or they'll sign Machado because, oh, we need a third baseman and he's young. And meanwhile, right, they should be going out there trying to trade for a starting pitcher to go ahead and get them not only through 162 games, but also through a postseason. Because we could talk about bullpens, and I understand that's going to be all the rage now with starters going five innings and then your bullpen cleaning up the rest of those innings to secure a victory. I get that, but I'm sorry. That's not going to cut it. You see that in the postseason a lot this year. I mean, just look at the Brewer game, game one. Gio Gonzalez pitches two innings and he's gone, and then the bullpen comes in. Or yesterday, uh, two days ago, with Wade Miley, he pitches five and two-thirds, gives up no runs, two hits, And then from then on out, you saw seven relief pitchers from the top of the sixth inning to the ninth inning in a game that they lost. And we'll get to in a second. So the Yankees could look at it from a standpoint of, oh, we could get the Machados and the Harpers of the world. And yeah, we may get another pitcher who's we could slot as a two or three, but now we have all the offense that we could possibly ever have and ever want and ever need. And we have a stock bullpen. So, hey, if our pitchers go five and we get that, that's the analytics of the game today. But does that mean... You're going to guarantee victory? Absolutely not. To me, get the starting pitching. Get the balance. You don't need 100 right-handed hitters to hit home runs. You broke the home run single-season record as it was this year with 267. What did that get you? That's all you need to say. That's all, that's all you need to ask yourself if you're a Yankee fan. Get the pitching. Don't worry about Machado. Don't worry about Harper. But we'll see what happens with Cashman uh, once the World Series is done. And out. As far as the series itself, Stanton, I know, is going to get a lot of the blame. We all know Aaron Boone's going to get a ton of the blame. Boone just had an awful series. There's no way to cut it, no way to slice it. Warts and all. I know Yankee fans, they already want to send them packing after this first year. But sadly, this is how it is. You're not going to get the Joe Girardi slash Buck Showalter slash Lou Pinella. They even go there. Those managers are out of play in Major League Baseball for 2018 and beyond. It's all about the young, analytical, let's hug it out, let's love the players. That type of mentality and that type of focus is what GMs and owners are looking at here 
Because if it's not about the analytics or it's not about a manager who's going to play within the parameters of the analytics, then why even get that type of guy, the guys I mentioned? Will Girardi get another job? I think he will, absolutely. But at the same time, I'm sure the GM is going to chirp in his ear that, hey, this is how we're going to run things here. We get that you've won a World Series and you were highly successful as a Yankee manager. And even before that, when he was with the Florida Marlins and won a manager of the year down there. But no, this is the way baseball is. And will be 2019. Take it or leave it. And I'm sure Girardi's going to take it. But at the same time, managers like that, I could see them butting heads with these GMs. And it's certainly, especially if they're not winning, and then what's going to happen? Which is one of the reasons why the Yankees didn't re-sign Joe Girardi and had every right to resign him. Why not? He took his team to a game seven of the ALCS last year. It was just one game within a World Series. And then this year, even with bringing guys like Luke Voigt at the trading deadline and Zach Britton and Giancarlo Stanton and all these other players, and uh, what do they get him? Sadly, that's just how baseball is. I mean, what are you going to do? And Stanton, although he had a good series, he had gotten some hits. But he strikes out in big. He struck out in big moments in the series, especially Game One and Game Four. And you know he took it like a man. He took it on the chin. Good for him. You'd only hope that this is a learning lesson for him, that he was just built from this, and he certainly didn't let the fans or the media get to him in this first year. Let's see how it plays and beyond. But uh, certainly did not end the way he wanted to, considering he had first and second nobody out and he was up. And I don't know if he was trying to do too much. Obviously, Kimber was on the ropes much later in the inning, but Giancarlo bailed him out there, just filling away at sliders as the inning continued, and we saw how that uh, shook down uh, last Tuesday in the Bronx. So I will close off the Yankee segment as this. Uh, again, it was a good season. They had their moments. They won 100 games, but they fell way short, and it's just a disappointing ending. I'm sure you feel good about the future with this team, but again, what is Cashman going to do this offseason? Those are going to be the keys as to where this team is going to go and more so around their pitching. Their offense, they're loaded. You don't have to worry about their offense. What is going to happen with their starting rotation and are they going to bring back the David Robertsons of the world? Will they bring back CC for one more year? Will they bring back J-Hap? I think it would be smart to bring back J-Hap. I don't know about CC. That I would leave aside. Even though he's 39, he's been part of your team for 10 years, you can't get nostalgic. There's nothing against CC, nothing against him. He's a guy you want on your team. He's a warrior. He's a battler. He's a fighter. But, and I understand you're going to pay him dirt cheap. But you know what? Give the money to Hap. Let him be your fourth starter. Maybe even your third starter, as high as that. And you go with it from that point, you know, from that standpoint. As far as the baseball is concerned, Bulls series of title one apiece. Red Sox had to have that game last night. And Chris Sale, who was in the hospital for a stomach virus, I believe it was, or an illness. Who knows what his status is going to be like. I haven't heard the latest. As a matter of fact, let me see if I can click on I'll give you an up-to-the-second report on Chris Sale. But uh, certainly did not pitch well or did not pitch Sale-like. He was erratic as far as the game one was concerned. Verland, of course, very well, pitched very well in his uh, first start here against the Red Sox. They went 7-2. Uh, Yuli Gurriel put the icing on the cake there in uh, game one with the three-run home run. But uh, just a a game that there's a bunch of walks, hits batsmen, just a, not just a crisp game at, at by any stretch. You know, game was over four hours. 
And then last night, with the Patriots playing in the shadow at Foxborough, right down the street, the Red Sox had a game they had to have. The big hit of the game was Milton Bradley, that three-run double, which was funny because that ball bounced on that shelf on the side of the wall. And to me, how I look at it was is that that was critical in getting that third run in because if the ball just bounced off the wall and you know took a couple hops to where you know the ball was being able to you know to get thrown in timely, who knows? That runner probably would have been stranded at third and would have had the game tied. And right, who knows how it would have played out from there? But because that ball bounced from the playing field up to the top of the wall and on that ledge that's there, it just bounced like two or three times which certainly gave the runner uh, to score, to make it 5-4. to four. And then Mookie Betts had a key tack on insurance run later on. The Red Sox were able to survive another bad start by David Price. What else is new? But now they go to Houston, which is going to be interesting to say the least. The Red Sox need one game, of course, because if they don't, they go home losing in five. But I would think if you're the Red Sox, to me, the, the, this game three right here is big. And if Nathan Eovaldi could pitch you a superb game the way he did against the Yankees in game three of the division series, then you know what? You'll have house money. Not to say that you want to lose the next two, but to me this next game is important because you don't want this to shape up the rest of this series where if Sale's going to come back and he didn't throw a lot of pitches there on Saturday night, does that mean if they lose game three, is he going to come back in game four? Not only pitch on short rest, but of course going through this ailment, which I see right now he's still hospitalized. He hasn't been cleared yet. Who knows if he's going to even travel with the team. May not be able to travel until maybe tomorrow. So, obviously, a lot of that's going to be played up here in the hours and uh, next couple of days. What does this mean also for their bullpen? right to get a day rest. But, you know, Ivaldi hopefully gives you some length here. If he gets knocked around, then the bullpen, which obviously has been very dicey here so far in this postseason, does that mean that you got to piecemeal it again to get to a game four? And with that, do you put Sale in with a tired bullpen? And we understand everybody's tired at this time of the year, but all these factors here, it's going to be critical for this game three tomorrow, and that's why I think the Red Sox need this game in the worst way. Because Ovaldi has pitched effectively. We understand Houston is going to be a hostile environment. Red Sox will like to push a couple runs early for Ivaldi, and he's going up against Dallas Keuchel. So I think this series... I think it's going to go back to Boston. I think it'll be down 3-2. Listen, I'm rooting for the Red Sox. Not to have anything against the Astros. But I can see the Astros winning here in six games. I think they'll win two of the next three. I'd like to see it go seven. But again, tomorrow night is more so for the Red Sox than for the Astros. They need this game in a worse way. Because I can see if the Astros go on and win... Game three, what's going to happen there? Game four, if Sale's going to be healthy. You know, are you going to pitch Eduardo Rodriguez? Porcello pitched an inning last night. I would think he's going to be the game four starter. Who knows? I mean, it's a, all that is going to be a lot to unpack there for the Red Sox if they don't win a game three tomorrow night in Houston as the series resumes down at Minute Maid Park. As far as the National League is concerned, you have the Dodgers and Brewers tied at one game apiece where game one, as I mentioned with Gio Gonzalez, you had Brandon Woodruff who came in in relief. And what did he do? He just hit a home run off Clayton Kershaw. And he bats left-handed. So that's all you need to know. Talk about seeing a Haley's Comet or having one of the more stranger events that could possibly happen in sports. Well, that was one. A relief pitcher left-handed hitting a home run off of Clayton Kershaw. 
And Kershaw didn't have it in game one. As we know, his postseason. Now, he's been a little bit better of recent years, but we all know we look back to that game five in the World Series last year. He had 4 nothing and 7-4 leads. Couldn't hold that. And I understand he pitched three scoreless innings in game seven, but they were already down 5 nothing at that point. But Kershaw, who likely will pitch game five in the series, unless they go down 2-1 as the series, as it uh, shifts back to Los Angeles. But Milwaukee had to hang on there in game one as the Dodgers came storming back to win, uh, to only to lose 6-5, to five, excuse me. And then game two with the Brewers up 3 nothing, there in the sixth inning. And you're thinking, wow, can the Brewers actually take a 2-0 lead? Well, the Brewers then gave up a couple runs, and then, of course, the big home run, a couple runs there in the seventh, and then the big blow, Justin Turner hitting the two-run home run in the eighth inning, which secured it there with Kenley Jansen coming in to get the save, which was an enormous win for the Dodgers. So I think the Brewers are going to win this series. I think they're, I think they're going to win seven games. I think this is going to go back and forth, tooth and nail. You've already seen that here in the first two games. Why would that change here over the course of the next three or four, maybe even five? Their series, it resumes tonight there. And then I like the next two days because you have both games. Uh, Let me look at the schedule. I would think that the Red Sox and Astros will get the primetime. I know they usually flip-flop one day to the next. I would think the primetime game will be tomorrow between the Red Sox and Astros. Uh, No, in fact, the... Well, of course, with the West Coast time, I guess with the game four tomorrow night, they have Boston and Houston at 5.09, game three, Milwaukee, LA, game four at 9.09, and then game five, 5.05 on Wednesday between the Brewers and Dodgers, and then game four between Red Sox, Houston at 8.39. So that's your schedule here over the next couple of days. We'll certainly keep our eyes on both of those series as we move forward. And to think by this time next week, we'll be talking World Series. Because Game 1 will be Tuesday, or scheduled for Tuesday. If the uh, the win of the Red Sox series, Red Sox and Astros, they will have the home field because they had a better record than either the Dodgers or the Brewers. So they will have the home field in the World Series, whomever comes out on the AL side. So that's it with the baseball. A couple of quickies before we uh, bid adieu. Uh, NHL, I know it was second weekend, and not, not really not much to discuss. I know the Devils have gotten off to a great start at 3-0. Islanders lose to Nashville. Now they're on a West Coast uh, trip to go to L.A. and then San Jose, and the Rangers have just been awful here to start their season. They're 1-4. Not much to cheer for if you're an Islander or a Ranger fan as far as the Devils are concerned. They had the one game in Sweden before coming home, and they actually beat San Jose yesterday. So not much to report. I know the other story was the Blackhawks. They started their first team in NHL history to start their season with five overtime games. So if you want to, you know, into trivia or into nostalgia, not going to say nostalgia, but if you're into trivia in that regard, uh, very odd to have uh, them start off their season with five games in overtime. And I don't even know what their record is. Not that it matters because that was just something that I saw. And it's weird. I know you have had a couple of complaints with the way the schedule has been. You know, certain teams have only played three games in the first two weeks, which is strange. I don't know if that's a scheduling issue with the league and other events that are taking place in their buildings, but uh, it is kind of strange to get the difference of schedule. Even the Islanders. You know, the Islanders had that game, what was it? Uh, you know, a game against Nashville, and then they didn't play, you know, five days later. And I get that you get breaks in the schedule. I get it that, you know, you're not going to play every other night. 
But it's just uh, it is weird to see that here we are going into the third week of the NHL season and teams haven't even played four games yet. I mean, Devils I can understand to a certain extent because you know they started their season overseas, but just weird as we get the NFL uh, NHL season now in full swing. And then of course the NBA season kicks off tomorrow night with two games: Philadelphia and Boston, game number one, followed by the Golden State Warriors hosting the Oklahoma City Thunder as they get their rings and raise another banner to the rap the Raptors, their last season at the old Oracle Arena before they moved to the Chase Center downtown on the other side of the bay in San Francisco. And if you're wondering why I haven't talked about NBA, Jay Reels, what's happening? You know, can't forget the association. Well, coming tomorrow, that's right, tomorrow I'm going to have an all-NBA podcast to talk about the season. With that, with my guest, Gerald Brown of NBA Radio, on Sirius XM Satellite, for those who have Satellite. He has a show every Saturday from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. on NBA Radio called The Bottom Line Sports Show. Actually goes back to his days when both he and I were at Blog Talk Radio. So we'll reminisce a little bit about our days at Blog Talk. We'll break down everything from the NBA, what the Knicks' expectations are, even the Brooklyn Nets. We'll go through each conferences. We'll pretty much discuss uh, who will be in the NBA Finals, all that, and uh, Joe was a great spot. That's going to be tomorrow. So tomorrow morning, probably by 10 a.m., but maybe even earlier. So on your commute to work or your commute home from work before the tip-off of the 2018-19 season is underway in the association, you'll get the wall-to-wall basketball from not only my guest, Gerald Brown, but also from myself. I'll give you over-unders. I'll give you my predictions, etc. And you'll get that on tomorrow's podcast moving forward. So with all that said, people, I appreciate another episode in the books. Feel free to check any of my social media accounts on Instagram, J Reels, Twitter, J Reels One, just a number, and the J Reels Podcast on my Facebook page. You could also send me an email, if not a DM on any of my social media sites, but an email at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. So if you have any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, you can send me an email there. And don't forget, subscribe, people. That's the main thing. Uh, just trying to Continue to put forth informative, credible, knowledgeable, entertaining sports talk for not only the masses here in New York, but of course beyond. Goes without saying that your participation in spreading the word and going to your phones on your apps, whether it's uh, Google Play or Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify. And remember, on your phone, you have that app. All you got to do is go to podcast, type in the J Reels podcast, hit subscribe. Leave a rating, post a review, because all that does is increase the visibility of the program, which will then extend a, a lot more in the sports podcast universe as far as uh, reaching out to certain people. And uh, increasing the visibility is important because when you host, produce, edit, and independently do a show like this one, word of mouth is critical. So again, I implore you to spread the word to those who may be interested, who love sports, like sports, whatever it may be as I am forever indebted for your participation and listening to this program each and every week here on the J Reels Podcast. And it goes without saying how much I thank you for that. Thank you twice, more than once. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Again, tomorrow, NBA preview with Gerald Brown from Sirius XM NBA Radio as we go through the league and talk about the locals with the Knicks and Nets. Until then, everybody, on the flip, baby.